Hi everyone, welcome again to Logical Bible Study. This is the Catholic podcast where every day we do a verse-by-verse exegesis of the Gospels. And today we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke. So we're looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. And as always, we'll read the text and then we'll have a go at breaking it down verse-by-verse. One day when Jesus was praying alone in the presence of his disciples, he put this question to them. Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others say one of the ancient prophets come back to life. But you, he said, who do you say I am? It was Peter who spoke up, the Christ of God, he said. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about this. The Son of Man, he said, is destined to suffer grievously to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and to be put to death, and to be raised up on the third day. So that's our passage for today, and those words are probably fairly familiar to many of you, because uh, this is Luke's version of the famous Peter's Confession, where Jesus then goes on to make him uh, the holder of the keys of the kingdom of God. This is Luke's version, though, which is a little more brief. So what's the context here? Jesus has been doing healings and miracles all across Galilee, and the thing that happened just before this in Luke's Gospel is the feeding of the 5,000. So it would appear that we're perhaps in the middle of Jesus' ministry, somewhere in the middle chronologically. Verse 18, one day when Jesus was praying alone in the presence of his disciples. Notice this, he's praying alone but with his disciples. So there's no crowds at this point, which is actually pretty rare for Jesus. It's just him and his disciples. So that's why he takes this opportunity to have this quite personal, um, revealing conversation with them, because there's no crowds around. Now, Matthew and Mark's gospel make it clearer that the location for this scene is as they're coming into Caesarea Philippi, but Luke doesn't tell us where it is. At this point, Jesus has been concealing his identity. He hasn't been willing to completely come right out and say that he's the Messiah. But he now wants to see if his disciples have perceived what it is and if they're ready to understand what it is. So he puts a question to his disciples. Who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus knows the answer to this question. He would know what the crowds thought of him, obviously. But he just wants to establish some common ground with the disciples for the rest of the conversation. So he's going to use this question as a launching platform to talk about some deeper concepts. And Caesarea Philippi, interestingly, is a region that's known for worshipping false gods. So perhaps that's another reason why Jesus takes the opportunity to ask about his own identity. And here's what the disciples say in response. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others say one of the ancient prophets come back to life. So these words are probably fairly familiar to you if you've been listening to the podcast in the last few days, because almost just prior to this, Uh, Herod wonders the same thing. Herod is wondering, is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he one of the ancient prophets? Those same three options are presented to us again. So these are the common opinions at the time about who Jesus is. So some think he's John the Baptist, because in Israel, John the Baptist was known as a mighty spirit-filled man. So some people think that maybe John the Baptist has come back to life in the person of what they think is Jesus. Uh, Another option that people believe is that he's Elijah, and that's because there's many prophecies in the Old Testament which predict that Elijah will return 
one day before the kingdom of God comes. If you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 23, there's predictions that Elijah will come back. And Elijah could work miracles. Jesus could work miracles. So some people think he's the same person. And the other option here is that others say he's one of the ancient prophets come back to life. So some other people at the time in the crowd are thinking that maybe Jesus is one of the other prophets, maybe Elisha or perhaps Moses, because there's some prophecies that Moses will return. If you look at Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, there's a hint there that maybe one day Moses will return. So there's all these different rumors about Jesus swirling around. Apparently no one has come right out at this point and said Jesus is definitely the Messiah. Possibly some people do think that, but that hasn't been fully announced yet, or certainly no one in the crowd has said that specifically, that they think he's the Messiah. So those three options, John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets, those are all preparatory roles for the Messiah. So no one seems willing to take the extra step of saying that he's the Messiah. But at least all of those titles do acknowledge that Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus uses that as a springboard to take it a step further and to show that he's in fact more than a prophet. He really is the Messiah. So having after the disciples have said those three options, Jesus says to them in verse 20, but you, who do you say that I am? So this is the key question. He wants to know who his own disciples think he is. And you could say that Luke here is directing this to each hearer, When the original readers of Luke's gospel read this part, they would have probably thought to themselves, who do I say that Jesus is? They have to wrestle with this question because at this point, there's been a lot of debate about who Jesus is. And now, as they come towards sort of the middle section of Luke's gospel, they need to reflect on who they think Jesus is. And it was Peter who speaks up. And it's significant that Peter does that because that shows that he's the leader who speaks on behalf of all the apostles. It is quite significant that Peter is the one that speaks. And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Now, that's quite profound. Christ literally just means Messiah. So when Jesus says, you, when Peter says, you are the Christ of God, it's equivalent to saying, you are the Messiah. And the Jews have been waiting for the Messiah. They do believe a Messiah is coming. But Peter is the first one to come right out and say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. No one during his ministry had directly understood this yet, Angels and demons have said it, but no human, except perhaps for Simeon early on, but certainly no human on their own reasoning has announced that Jesus is the Messiah yet. So the fact that Peter does that here is significant, and it's evidence that Peter is inspired by God in order to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, it's possible some scholars think that because the feeding of the 5,000 happens just before this, Maybe because of the Old Testament background of the feeding of the 5,000, so it's the manna in the wilderness, which is associated with Moses. So some think that the fact that the feeding has just happened is what allows this recognition that Jesus is the Messiah to take place. So it's a precursor to the revelation of his identity. And this is, of course, Peter's great confession. You are the Christ of God. This confession appears in all four Gospels in some form. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we learn that Peter actually goes on to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then, of course, what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And then he gives him the keys of the kingdom of God and makes him the first pope, basically. Now, that's in Matthew's version. And it's a very Jewish idea, this idea of a leader of the kingdom of God or a prime minister in the kingdom of God. And so perhaps Luke leaves out that more lengthy discussion between Jesus and Peter because 
Luke is writing mostly to Gentiles, and perhaps they wouldn't understand the Old Testament context of Jesus uh, setting up a prime minister for his kingdom in a messianic kind of way. That's one explanation of why Luke doesn't include the full version here. Or perhaps Luke already knows that Matthew is planning to write about that and he doesn't want to include it. It can be hard to work out why gospel authors have shorter or longer versions of things. So verse 21, after Peter has said, you're the Messiah, Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about this. And in fact, the Greek here can be translated rebuked. He rebuked his disciples and made sure that they don't tell anyone. Now, that might seem strange. And there's a lot of these phrases in the Gospels where Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. And this is something that comes out particularly in the Gospel of Mark. And we talk about it a bit in our commentary in the Gospel of Mark in these episodes. It seems the reason why Jesus doesn't want word to spread that he's the Messiah is because he knows that people at the time have a false understanding of the Messiah. They think the Messiah is going to be an earthly, political, military leader. So if word gets around that he's the Messiah, there might be a frenzy. People will try and take him and make him king and things will get out of hand and he might be killed too early or maybe his ministry would go off in the wrong direction, and he doesn't want that to happen. So Jesus, out of prudence, says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Now, obviously, he knows that later in human history, people will understand that he's the Messiah, and he wants that to happen later in human history, but not while he's alive. Otherwise, it will stuff up his ministry. Now, apparently, the apostles comply with this order. They don't tell anyone that he's the Messiah. We don't have any record of them telling people that he's the Messiah until after his resurrection. And of course, in the book of Acts, they go around telling people that he's risen from the dead and he's the Messiah. Now, Matthew's version of this says, from that time on, Jesus began to show the disciples. And then it goes into the next part of the text here. So it implies that Jesus, what we're about to hear, is something that Jesus is continually teaching them. And it appears that Jesus begins to teach them these things about his identity as a result of Peter recognizing him as the Messiah. Since Peter recognizes that he's the Messiah, Jesus figures that they're now ready to hear about his destiny. Had Peter not recognized that he's the Messiah, Jesus may not have gone on to tell them what he now tells them. So here's the whole thing he tells them in our verse 22. The Son of Man is destined to suffer grievously, to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and to be put to death and to be raised up on the third day. So it's a very specific prophecy. There's a whole lot of things he lists here. So starting with the first phrase, he says, the son of man is destined. And the son of man is an image from the Old Testament. It's a figure in the Old Testament, which has a few different um, connotations. But in the time of Jesus, it had come to um, basically mean the Messiah. So when Jesus says son of man, it would have evoked images of both humiliation and glory and it's his own, it's his preferred name for himself. He, rather than saying the Messiah will do this, he says the Son of Man will do this in reference to himself. He says the Son of Man is destined. So notice that key word there, destined or must. It's like a divine must. Jesus is teaching them these things from the perspective of prophecy. And so the idea of this phrase, it's not... In this context, he's not really saying, I'm going to suffer, although he is saying that. His main point is something like this. According to God's plan of salvation, as made clear in the Old Testament, all of these things must happen to the Messiah, the Son of Man. And the word must there can be translated uh, as what we have as destined. So 
He wants his disciples to understand that these things must happen. And when they happen, they're not accidents or tragedies. God has set things up so that these must happen. Of course, the disciples' initial reaction when these terrible things happen to Jesus would naturally be to think it's a tragedy, it's an accident. But Jesus tells them beforehand, God has set things up, this is how it must be. He says, the Son of Man must suffer grievously. So he's now going to tell them about the specific rejection he's going to face. That's the opposite of what they expected. They thought the Messiah was going to be earthly and political, not involving suffering and death. So that's pretty revolutionary for them to hear what he's about to say. The Son of Man will suffer grievously, will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. So that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders at the time, who should have been the ones to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus announces they're going to be the ones that reject the Messiah. He then gets even more specific. He says, the Son of Man will be put to death. And we know, of course, that that is by crucifixion and will be raised up on the third day. Now, notice how specific that prophecy is. We've probably heard those words so many times, but think about the original context. Jesus tells them the Son of Man is going to die and then be raised on the third day. Why the third day? Well, there's lots of different things that could be said about that, but it probably taps into one specific text in the Old Testament. If you look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, it says, God will revive us after two days. On the third day, he will raise us up to live in his presence. Now, in the context of Hosea, that's talking about God raising up Israel after suffering. And it's sort of a poetic way of saying that God will eventually do it. But Jesus applies this Hosea text to himself. In a way, he's saying the whole history of Israel can be summed up in himself. And it will be literally fulfilled when he literally is raised on the third day. So uh, it's interesting. Sometimes prophecies in the Old Testament, the Jews at the time took a little too literally. And certainly with some of the Messiah texts, they misunderstood them. But sometimes the reverse is true. Sometimes they didn't perceive that there's going to be a more literal fulfillment of things that had already had a spiritual meaning in the Old Testament. So it can go both ways. So Jesus has predicted all these things early in his ministry. He knows exactly how the timeline is going to go. It's unfortunate that his disciples do not recall when these things happen later. They don't recall that Jesus prophesied them all. And so they get worried and they run away rather than having confidence that it's God's plan, which is why Jesus told them that these things. He hoped that they would uh, show confidence when those things happened. But it seems that the disciples forgot about them at the time. The disciples only fully understood these events later. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus has to remind them it is written that the Messiah would suffer. So later in Luke, Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus reminds his disciples that the Old Testament predicts the Messiah is going to suffer. And of course, in the book of Acts, eventually the disciples get it and they go around and preach that Jesus is the suffering servant, but he's the Messiah. So that's the end of the text we have today. The next part of this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, so verse 22 to 25, you can hear that on Thursday after Ash Wednesday. So if you look through the podcast archives, if you want to go through Luke chronologically, the next part is not read on a normal, ordinary time weekday. It's read on Thursday after Ash Wednesday. Then verse 26 to 28 is never read in the lectionary. So we'll cover verses 26 to 28 as a bonus episode of the podcast. 
and you can get access to those through the Patreon page in the show notes if you're interested. Then the next part after that, verse 28 to 36, that's the transfiguration. Now, that's not read on a weekday, but it is read on the second Sunday of Lent in year C, and it's also read some years on the Feast of Transfiguration as well. So, that's later in the chapter. And then after that, we have verse 37 to 43 of Luke chapter 9, and again, that's never read in the lectionary. Verse 37 to 43 is when Jesus heals the boy with the demon. It's never read in the lectionary, interestingly, so we will cover those sort of missing parts of Luke chapter 9 as bonus episodes of the podcast. Let's now turn to the Catechism and see what it has to say about this passage. If you notice right at the start of the passage today, in the very first verse, it says, one day Jesus was praying alone in the presence of his disciples. So the Catechism has a bit to say about that. Paragraph 2600 is about how Jesus prays. The Gospel according to St. Luke emphasizes the action of the Holy Spirit and the meaning of prayer in Christ's ministry. Jesus prays before the decisive moments of his mission, before his Father's witness to him, during his baptism and transfiguration, and before his own fulfillment of the Father's plan of love by his passion. He also prays before the decisive moments involving the mission of his apostles, at his election and call of the Twelve, before Peter's confession of him as the Christ of God, and again that the faith of the chief of the apostles may not fail when tempted. Jesus' prayer before the events of salvation that the Father has asked him to fulfill is a humble and trusting commitment of his human will to the loving will of the Father. That's quite a profound insight there that the Catechism has. Jesus seems to pray before particular moments in his ministry. And one of the ones that he um, that the Catechism lists is Peter's confession of faith here. And the implication is that perhaps if Jesus hadn't prayed before this episode, then uh, Jesus, then Peter may not have recognized that he's the Messiah. Maybe Jesus prayed that the Holy Spirit would inspire Peter. Only Luke emphasizes that Jesus prayed before Peter's great confession of faith. So that's an interesting insight you can take from this. So that's all we have today. I hope you have learned something new about Luke chapter 9. Please share this podcast around with other people and we'll continue in the coming days.